What's that tune? See? That's awesome. That's not what it is, but that's where you've heard it. Who, who knows what that was? Come on. Beethoven's fifth. Beethoven's fifth. Excellent. All right. This one's a little tougher. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. That four note op- that four that four note opening motif is perhaps the most recognized piece of music in history, and you were perfect being here today because Henry knows it from where was that again? Right in the cartoons. If you are at all connected with popular culture, you know you might you don't have to even know who Beethoven was. You don't have to know classical music. You know that opening four note motif. It's everywhere. You can hear it at sporting events, you can hear it pop music, you can see it on television. But here's my question, okay? If we don't recognize this, can we really say we know Beethoven's Fifth Symphony? Can we? Would we say, would we ever say that because we know this, but not this, could we say we're an expert on Beethoven? just because we know those opening four notes, but we don't know the rest of the piece. This opening, all right, if we don't really understand his entire Fifth Symphony in C minor, which is over 30 minutes long, if we don't understand that, then we don't even know what he was trying to communicate with this. may not even mean what he intended it to mean. All the ways it's been applied in popular culture, Beethoven might be like, what? So for example, some people may only know the opening motif from firework shows, the Boston Pops play that every year. So some might be, oh, Beethoven wrote this for that. He might have hated explosions. And he might be horrified that his grand work is being used for firework displays. So here's the thing. This is only magnificent. Because it's part of this. And that 
that is often what it is like when it comes to reading the Bible. And I'm sure some of you knew that's exactly where I was headed. And this is especially true when reading Paul. Verses become so well-known, so recognizable. They take on meanings all their own and often completely apart from any intention of the author, any intention of the greater narrative of Scripture. But people will live and die for the meanings of those things. Like... Beethoven's fifth opening motif is part of cartoons. No, it's not part of cartoons. It works well in cartoons, but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. And our text today is especially, especially like this. Here we are in chapter 5 of Galatians, and we encounter some of the most widely recognized words of St. Paul's. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Little side note. I'm teaching through Galatians because you guys remember about a year and a half ago I said, hey, if you want me to teach you something, just ask. You know, if you want me to teach on something, I'd be happy to, to go with that. Someone came up and said, can you teach on fruits of the Spirit? And I'm like, I'd love to. But that means I'm teaching on Galatians. You see? Fruits of the Spirit are such... Everyone knows the fruits of the Spirit. But... So what? It's part of this letter. It's part of his library. It's, it's part of scripture. And a lot of people, depending on certain kinds of branches of Christianity, are very familiar with the list of the sins of the flesh, too. This is a highly, highly well-known and recognized piece. But when these two lists are taken out of scripture and out of context and just held up as themselves... They can become nothing more than this. That is a fascinating sound, no doubt. And those passages are fascinating. But what do they really mean? They are truly epic. These are epic and very important passages of Scripture. That is so true, but only when understood in the context of what Paul is really getting at. Read alone, they can mean all sorts of things. Often, these two passages end up meaning the exact opposite of what Paul just spent the entire letter writing. He was building this massive argument, and then as he shifts and he wraps up his letter, if these get taken out of context of that argument, they don't mean what we think they mean. So, we're going to be looking at these epic passages over the next coming weeks. But today, I want to see what we can learn to be prepared to really understand them by listening to the rest of the symphony, if you will. Okay, so how does Paul start? What he does is he gives us context. And what we've been discovering throughout Paul's library, you saw this when we were in Corinthians, you've seen it already in Galatians, is how he gives context is he sums up the essence of the gospel. Okay, so this we looked at a few weeks ago, remember? So here's Paul summing up the essence of the gospel. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. He's completing his argument on we are not under the law, we are completely free from the law, and he explains it this way. You don't need to be circumcised, you don't need to do anything, because you are completely free, and the only thing that matters is love. All right? There's the context for that argument. Now he's transitioning into, okay, so if this is true, if we are free from the law, what does that mean for us? And before he goes into what that means for us, he again gives us context by summing up the entire Christian faith, the entire theology of grace this way. 
through love, become slaves to one another. And I want to make a side note. This is something Paul is always doing in his letters. Always. When Paul is read closely, there is a near nonstop repetition of the essence of our faith. He is constantly summing up what it means, what the gospel means and what our faith means, if you read him closely. He's always doing it. And it always sounds similar to this. Sometimes it takes on different language, but it always tends to point to the same thing. Do it this way, like this illustration I'm using today. If we imagine Paul's library as a symphony, and you don't let the big pieces become an end in themselves, and you really focus on the symphony and what Paul's saying, it's be, it becomes incredibly clear what he is trying to say and what even some of his most famous pieces really do mean in context. So, to my illustration today, how many of you are very, have been and are familiar with the Fruits of the Spirit passage, right? Honestly, if you've been in church any amount of time, you're familiar with this passage. Okay? But, again, honestly, before it was read to us this morning, if you had been pressed in a test, how many of you would have been able to say that this was part of the same chapter? Like, honestly. Especially that bit, through love become slaves to one another. Who would have really known that was part of Galatians chapter 5? And where we find fruits of the Spirit. Some of you probably, but a lot of us wouldn't have, and that makes sense. For even if we are those who do study the Bible, these are the bits that tend to go unmarked and unhighlighted and unremembered, right? Because this is the rub. This is the rub. And you know what? Even most translators help us to ignore this great summation of St. Paul's. Because so many translations render this serve one another in love. If you go through, I, I must have checked out 50 translations this week. And there's only a couple that bring it here. But the scholarship is overwhelmingly in support that this is what the original means. Okay? To be a slave of one another or enslave ourselves to one another. Paul intended for this to be a shocking contrast. He intended that. But because of what we have been looking at for so long and how strong appeasement theology is, even the translators join it and they render it serve one another in love. Here's the problem with serve one another. That just to become part of Christian vernacular. Oh, well, let's serve one another. Like, let's serve in the Sunday school. Or let's serve the sick by making meals. Let's join the serving ministry at church. But have you ever noticed what that is? Bless you. Have you noticed what that language is? It's a choice. It's a choice. Oh, I'm not so good with kids. I'm not going to serve in the Sunday school. Thanks for asking. I don't cook well. I'm not going to serve a meal to that sick family. No. Thanks. Now, you know what? I'm just not really good in, into serving, so I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I, I just need something that satisfies me. That's not what Paul intended. See? So he used language that doesn't allow for that. There is, there is no choice in slavery. Unless you're Kanye West and you're a complete and utter... I, I don't even know. Well, I, I don't even know what happened this week. 
when a black man says, slavery is a choice. I, I don't even know what. Well, there is nothing to choose about slavery. Nothing. And Paul intended that. Paul intended this. And that's what the gospel is. And that's, right here, what makes this passage of Galatians chapter 5 so special. And so wonderfully important. And why it's so important to understand this, if we're going to understand the big part that's coming up later. So, I call this freedom and slavery the forgotten paradox of glory. Freedom and slavery, the forgotten paradox of glory. Though, you know, the more I study and teach this gospel of Jesus Christ, this theology of grace that we have been exploring, the more I'm realizing that it is not so much forgotten as I think it's more it's never been learned because it's been lost, maybe purposefully lost. But I don't mean that in some mean-spirited or partisan way. That's not what I mean. I think it's simply because this is the one truth we're not interested in knowing and we're much less interested in embracing. You know, for so many years, this is confession time, I have looked back on my days of being really wrapped up as a legalistic and an exclusive Christian, and I've often looked back on those years with disdain and embarrassment for the things I said, the things I did, the things I taught. And I have been incredibly intolerant of those in that theology. But with each passing day and each year I get older and the more I spend time going deeper and deeper into this mystery of grace, I am realizing that where I was was pretty natural. And I'm losing my disdain for that time in my life and my embarrassment. And I am growing little by little to have much more tolerance and empathy for those that are still committed to appeasement theology. Because, see, this grace stuff goes virtually against every natural inclination we have. And we're going to be looking at in, you know, a little bit, because Paul uses this word flesh, which I think has been often taken out of context, but we're, we're going to see what he's really trying to say there. We are naturally inclined to save ourselves, to preserve ourselves, to protect ourselves, right? So no wonder we only go so far with our faith and grace, and then we have to qualify it and bring it back, a little bit of appeasement back in. You know, we've talked about this a lot, how we have this strange mix of theology. You know, my favorite way of describing it is that great line in one of Bono's songs where he says, you say love is a temple, love a higher law, you ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. That's so much what Christian theology has become. We almost understand grace, but it's too frightening and too demanding and too terrifying. So we have to be about appeasement instead. See, think about it. If this is the end, oh, that's not that. If this is the end of grace, right here, if this is it, and I believe that is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I believe grace is the final reality. I believe that with all my being. And I believe that this is the end of grace. When God was here in the flesh, this is where he went himself. 
right? He became slaves to all of us, Philippians 2. He came and died for us, okay? So if this is the end, whoa, who wants to learn this? That's why we run away from theology of grace. Who wants this? I will highlight fruits of the Spirit all day long. But this? No, I'm all set with this. Thank you very much. Okay? So, but here's what's interesting. This is actually the opening four-note motif of the end of his letter. It's actually the opening four-note motif of the entire scriptures. So, we're the ones who change that by ignoring the focus of Paul's. That's why, for us, the big deal is the fruits of the Spirit or those sins of the flesh. No, this is the opening motif. This is the big deal. Okay? So, what I want to do is let's try to bring this back this morning on what is really Paul's really trying to get at here. So, Paul was brilliant, obviously. We saw that through the years we were in Corinthians. He's an absolute brilliant writer and just a brilliant thinker. And on top of that, incredibly inspired. And so he knew that all his talk about freedom from the demands of the law, freedom from appeasement theology, would probably, in some minds or many minds, be completely misunderstood. Right? And so what would happen is it would lead to some people saying, oh, I can do anything I want. Paul said I'm free. And that would in turn lead to some people saying, see, he can't possibly be a Bible-believing Christian. Or in Paul's case, he can't possibly be a an apostle because he's teaching license and sinning. And we've heard that. I've heard that plenty of times. I used to say that. So Paul wraps up his letter by explaining what it means then to really be free of the demands of the law. What it really means to live love. What it means to be a Christian. And it starts here and it ends here. And this is the whole thing. This is the beginning, middle, and end of the biblical narrative. All right? But without understanding this, these lists that we're going to get to become something much different than Paul ever meant them to be. So, what is Paul saying? What is this context Paul is giving us? Let's start with freedom. This is a concept that for most of us Americans, freedom is radically different than what Paul was talking about. Freedom for us, and in fact, forget about just Americans, for all moderns. Freedom for all moderns, at most everywhere in the world, means free to do what we want to do. Free to live the way we want to live. How we want to live. Free from constraints, free from expectations. That's what freedom means, that's what we celebrate. Another month or two we'll have a big day of celebrating freedom. Alright? And that's like the line, I, that's why I played the opening video for those of you that were here. The rest of you, church starts at 9.30. <clears throat> Sorry, did that come out? I was thinking of that. It's not supposed to come out. The line in that video is, I want to be free to know the things I do are right. I want to be free. Just me. Well, <laughs> What you're doing isn't right. It's not right. <laughs> it, do you know what I mean? 
that, that, that song, I can, I, I, I've spent so many conversations ripping that song to shreds. I love listening to it. I I'm, I'm, was a huge Lionel Richie fan, and I think the Commodores were great. But the, the song is not at all. The whole song starts off with, yeah, I'm leaving you tomorrow because you just, you're dragging me down. You're telling me what I'm doing isn't right. I'm out of here. I need freedom. See, that's what freedom means to us. That's what freedom means. It's a hyper-egocentric idea that we have been brought up with with freedom. And this is where you really see culture and Christianity blend together in a lot of American churches and a lot of modern Western churches. They just, it's weird politics and worldviews and philosophies and agendas all mix in with the gospel and all of a sudden we have this crazy thing where people can somehow tell you that Jesus Christ wants you to kill someone. So it's weird, right? So this is how these things get all blended together. So, and then what we do is we couch it in this language. Maybe you've heard this language. Maybe you've said it. I've said it. Well, if I'm not hurting anybody else, who cares what I do? All right, so here's a few things along those lines I want to think about. Is, number one, you might be hurting yourself. And God doesn't want that. God doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. He loves us. So you might be hurting yourself. So that's not really ever a good idea. Um, and think of it this way. Okay, so you're not actively hurting someone else, but if you're not helping them and, they need, and everyone needs help, shouldn't that be our focus? Helping others? Because if we're not helping others, aren't we ultimately hurting them? Right? At some level? So either way, that hyper-egocentric focus is just the opposite of Jesus Christ and the opposite of God. And worse, it's such a short step from that idea, well, I'm not hurting anyone else, so I can do this. But that's a short step to, you know, at the end of the day, who cares about others? Like, honestly, as long as I'm okay. That's a, that's, you guys, that's a razor-sharp line to, to that be why we do anything we want. That's a, that's a razor-sharp line that we should be very careful of. For Paul, freedom was very different and a much more glorious idea. And this is what I want us to hear this morning. I loved studying Galatians over this last how many months, and this is like we're getting to this point. I want you to think about this. Freedom for Paul, which he learned from Christ, was freedom to be who we were created to be, sons and daughters of God, kings and queens of his kingdom. You know that great video that we used to watch, 30 Seconds to Mars, the kings and queens during the Corinthians? I gotta bring, that would have been a good video for today. This is what we were created for. Freedom for Paul is about being redeemed back into a fuller image of God. Freedom for Paul is to live like Jesus Christ in the world. And I want you to think about that. Christ defined freedom as being a slave of all, right? That's what Philippians 2, I already mentioned. This is what Philippians 2 is. Here is freedom. Taking the form of a slave. Remember, we're called to be like Christ. Again, that's another line that doesn't really get highlighted as having anything to do with us. But I want you to think about this. In dying for us, he demonstrated what real glory looks like and what real power looks like 
and what real freedom means. Think about this. Jesus did what? He walked on water. He healed the sick. He fed the poor. He rose from the dead. That's glorious, isn't it? I think. That's what we were created to be, that. And that's not blasphemous. Jesus himself said, oh, you'll do a lot more than this. This is nothing. So what's the difference between Jesus and us? He took the form of a slave. Wait, that's exactly what Paul says freedom is. Become a slave and we will live like Christ in this world. Wow. This is glorious. So when Paul writes of being free from the law, it is not freedom to lawlessness, it is freedom to fulfill the law. Chrysostom, one of my favorite early church fathers, writes it this way. Paul states his object to be, not that our course of life might be lawless, but that our philosophy might surpass the law. For the bonds of the law are broken, not that our standard may be lowered, but that it may be exalted. That's awesome. That's where we're being called. To exalted standards, above the law. Now, I want you to notice something. Here's Paul's absolute brilliance. Do you see the word he uses? For the whole law is fulfilled. This is key to understanding. Now, so now we're going out into Paul's broader symphony. Okay? This is exactly what he said when he wrote to the Romans. No one, oh, no one anything except to love one another. There's a summation of the gospel again, right? I told you this is everywhere. Everywhere he sums up the gospel. It only has to do with love. So when someone looks you in the eye and says, there's so much more than love about God, say, actually, then you've never read the Bible. No, don't say that. That's really mean. Just say, well, actually, maybe we just don't understand what God means by love. Because if there is anything more to God than love, then maybe he's not God. Because divine love is the only thing we don't have naturally. And this is what he wants, right? So, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Where did Paul get this? Come on. All right, good, good, glad. Matthew, right? Jesus himself said it. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. This is why, but we didn't understand. That's why we had to kill him, because he said I didn't abolish the law, but then he turned around and he did abolish a lot of the law. You have heard that it was said eye for an eye. He said, but no, that's not true. <gasps> kill him. Blasphemy. But he never abolished it. He fulfilled it. Do you see how much bigger that is? What a higher thing. And that's where the law was bringing us. But it's hard to get here until you're fully surrendered. Because here's the thing now, okay? Here we go. Listen carefully. Paul said the law will be fulfilled. Appeasement theology says you have to do the law and you have to strive to be faithful to the law. Okay? That's not what grace theology is. So listen, here. Paul, in another part, in his letter to the Romans. This is brilliant. I've got to turn around and read it. Sorry. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness, likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, you ready for this? All right. 
see how this is all coming together. Those of you that have stuck out the Cana experiment for 10 years and those of you that are just joining have probably heard enough. It's all coming together. When we are set free by grace, and that's the only thing that can set us free, we are then living in the Spirit. The Spirit, God, has fulfilled the law, and so God in us, in us, is empowering us to live into that fulfillment, not empowering us to follow the laws for the law's sake. That's not what's going on in our lives. So you are absolutely right. When you don't feel settled about someone teaching you you need to obey and do the law, you should be unsettled. Because that's exactly not what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. But what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives is bigger than that. The Holy Spirit is not in our lives directing us to lawlessness. And that should unsettle us just as much. Because he's trying to do something bigger. All right, Thielman writes it this way. Believers fulfill the law, not because they continue to be obligated to it, but because, by the power of the Spirit in their lives, their conduct coincidentally displays the behavior that Mosaic Law prescribes. Paul is claiming that believers have no need of Mosaic Law because by their Spirit-inspired conduct, they already fulfill its requirements. Bam! I am so excited about this. This could be an empty room and I'd be excited. I just wish, I wish someone had brought me through this at 18. So, and the conduct that the Spirit is freeing us to is to be slaves in love to one another. That's it. Not anywhere else. God's not bringing us anywhere else. You know, I have had people look me in the eye and say, well, you know, I know this adultery that I'm involved in is, is probably not really with the law, but God has told me clearly he wants me to do this. This is good for me. And we all shake our heads, and I want you to shake your heads at that, but trust me, we're all in that same place. It's just that everyone sitting in this room is very comfortable that we know adultery doesn't meet the law. We know that. And adultery doesn't even meet the exalted, what God's bringing us. Why? Because you're killing people. You're destroying people all over the place. That's why. See, this is the thing. It's, we are so influenced by Puritans that it's a shame because it's not this, like, just, just base, generic sexual morality. No, that's not it at all. When you're committing adultery, how many people are you destroying? Well, it's not hurting anyone. It's in a bedroom. No, it's not. It's hurting everybody. You're hurting your own spouse. You're hurting whoever that person's spouse is. You're hurting kids. You're hurting neighbors. You're hurting people. That's not what the law is about. God didn't tell you that's good for you. I'm sorry. And I'm all upset because I have so many things in my life that I say that same thing. And the Holy Spirit's just in there, yeah, no, David, that's not me. Good luck with that. And he brings me back to this. And it's not highlighted in my Bible. And I pretend it's not existing. And I slide back into appeasement theology because I don't commit adultery. So I'm a very good Christian. 
So there you go. Even though I don't do anything for anybody else. See why appeasement theology is so powerful? Oh, and don't murder? I've never murdered anyone in my life. I don't even own a gun. I wouldn't know what to do with a gun. But I hate people. <laughs> you just saw someone come out in this service when I really talked to evilly Kanye West. See? See why grace is so big and so beautiful? But it's more beautiful than what I'm talking about because here we go. Ready? Witherington is brilliant here. God in, because God in Christ has done what the law could not, Christians then do not strive to fulfill the law, but rather to walk in the Spirit. The just requirements of the law are thus fulfilled in the life of the Christian precisely by walking in the Spirit, not by obeying the law. Oh, so here's the thing. You don't leave a service like this going, man, I've got to be a better Christian. No. That's why I wish someone explained this to me at 18. Because all my trying to be a good Christian just led me to keep not doing good things. Oh, I look good on the outside, but I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't growing. Nothing was changing. This changes everything. This is why it's all. We just have to focus on what God in us is trying to do and let God do it and not fight against it. That's it. That's it. That's it. And whatever that looks like in our life, what we need to focus on, that's what we do. And what that focus is, is, Lord, how can I be a slave to others? I know it sounds, wow, slavery, David, that's, I can't even believe you're in that word. I know. But the beauty is, then we'll be like Christ. We'll be glorious. I tried everything. This is what I, I'm, I'm going in this direction. This is what God in us, God that will help us walk on water and heal people and live glorious and rise from the dead. This is, this is it. This is the direction. Slaves to one another in love. That's, there's the direction. The Spirit will help us live love for others. And the whole law is ultimately about love for others, right? That's why. That's why it's in there. Read it closely. It's all it's about. It's about love for others. Hmm. And the final side note as I wrap up. This is Paul's absolute brilliance on display. Actually, that's not. That's Witherington, right? There's Paul's absolute brilliance on display. Because here's what he's doing all at the same time. One, he is heading off any arguments for license. Two, he's explaining the glorious mystery of the gospel, what we've just been looking at. And in a more narrow way, for these people in Galatia that are all worked up because they've been told if they don't get circumcised, they're not going to be in the family of God. And he's saying, hey, hold, hold on a second. He's saying, listen, here's the cool thing. Grace theology goes way beyond just obeying the law. It actually fulfills the whole thing. So you're fine without becoming circumcised. See how that all works? Ugh. Listen, I know I've gone way too long this morning. And I know I was real worked up for just a few people, but thanks for being here. This, is, this to me is some of the biggest stuff ever. This, this is getting to it. This is hopefully it's starting to open things up to us. You know, we're not here to be ethicists and more moral policemen or any of that stuff. We're here to be slaves to one another in love. And so we're going to continue in chapter 5 in a couple weeks. 
next week is Mother's Day, so we'll, we'll do another Mother's Day thing. But we're going to get back into these. And I hope already these lists are starting to make more sense, just through what I've said this morning. These lists are not commands of things we could or should do or shouldn't do. They are indications, we use this word a lot, right? These lists are indications of where we are in our faith. Not where we are in our work, where we are in our faith. Faith that trusts God to guide us into glory will lead us into a certain way of living. Slaves to others in love. Faith that doesn't trust God, well...